Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sedate. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen, and together we can simplify by combinating. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this special episode of the Cabinet Podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sadeh, and on this episode, we are graced and honored by Nathan Roman. Nathan Roman is a validation and temp control expert, and he branched off on his own in the 20-ish years ago range. I'm not exactly sure how many years it's been. Got a start as a draftsman and is now focused on validation and temperature mapping. More, more specifically, welcome, Nathan. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're focused on validation in many ways now. What got you into this field? Because you transitioned from being an AutoCAD draftsman into validation. And I guess in my head, just based on the functions that I've worked with in medtech, biotech, and so on, design is one area. Operations is another area, but so you got your start as an AutoCAD draftsman and moved from that arena straight into validation. It feels very trial by fiery, if you will. And in my head, I'm just thinking it's seldom that somebody goes so hard in, in, in a design function to so hard in operation. It's like most people will be like, all right, I'm an auto, I'm an AutoCAD person. I'm going to move into designed for manufacturability. That kind of makes sense, right? But to go from I'm doing pre-market drawings to I'm validating lines on one shot feels into the deep end. True. I can understand that. I appreciate that. But I certainly didn't go from doing CAD work to jumping into hardcore validation process or process validation type stuff, right? Uh, Doing CAD work, I was... I originally was doing 3D modeling, designing steel structures for aggregate plants in the quarries here in PA, Pennsylvania, where I live. Quarry plants are huge, obviously, with the, the, being the Keystone State. So I was designing quarry rock, rock crushers and conveyor belts and things like that. Anyway, so that's what I was doing. But I had an uncle who was in the engineering validation role at a company called Raytheon back in the day. And he ended up moving on to a couple of different roles, needed some help on a validation job on a project in Lancaster. And he needed someone to help him out read PNIDs. Um, so like I say in my story, I knew what he needed because I, I basically, I worked on PNIDs or drawings every day, all day. I was able to help him out. So I went, all, I went over and helped him. And it was very rudimentary walking around with the drawing. And I like to say back in those days with the highlighter and I had to follow my path and things like that with piping and the ductwork. So it was very easy stepping into this role. And then 
after that is when he was interested in and seeing if I if I could progress more, do more. Hey, Nate, are you interested in, in a job? Are you interested in a role? And not to mention it was quite a pay bump from doing CAD work as a, a CAD guy to being a validation specialist. So that, of course, was nice. But I started off low level, right? So doing P&ID walk downs, equipment walkthroughs, verifying the tags on equipment. What, what's the nameplate say? Okay, read it back to me. That kind of stuff out in the field. And then moved on to put you on a project an hour and 45 minutes away from home. You got to drive there every day. So it was a lot of commuting back then. But, but I was able to get on site with somebody with a good project manager that kind of walked me through what's a protocol? How do you execute the protocol? What are good documentation practices? Like I didn't know any of this stuff, but slowly learn different things through time is how it got started. What's changed since then on the validation front? Because I, I suppose I hadn't put it together that you went from being a draftsman to basically starting at the bottom of validation where you're doing the basics and then building. So in, in other words, you did a transition. It, w it, was, it wasn't a lateral. That's right. You went, you basically restarted in a new, you obviously take your experiences with you wherever you go, but I'm saying it's not like you went from, let's say at a manager sure. level where you have responsibilities for based on five to 10 years of work, you started out at the early on the basics and you've built up since then. So what's changed? Uh, my age for one thing. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I started young, um, we're talking 23 years ago. Um, and I was, uh, you know, 21, 22 years old then. So I, I was ripe for learning, ripe for starting over, at, if, at, as you say, which to me wasn't really starting over. I was like learning new things and I still had so far to grow. But for someone like currently my age right now, if I was in engineering or CAD and I wanted to get into the validation world, yeah, I guess you're right. It would absolutely feel like starting over, but you can learn so much quickly if you're hungry for it. And I think that's where it's almost like, okay. Yeah. You might start over per se, but there's so much room to grow so much, so many things to learn and you sky's the limit sort of thing on the pharmaceutical validation consulting quality side. Yeah. And so from, from a validation standpoint, what's changed, uh, in the last 20 some odd years? In my perspective, um, things that have changed are the equipment that we're using for temperature mapping, for example. So in the past, we used these big chunky data loggers to, and, and all the thermocouples, and we would have to wire up a room, uh, a warehouse with thermocouples. And that's hard work. That's a lot. In the service chase, we're running hundreds of lines of uh, feet of, of thermocouples. And now we just place a, a simple data logger on the shelf, wireless thing. So that's completely changed. The way we document and, and, and execute our protocols, obviously everything in the past still is today on paper-based, right? So draft the protocol in Word, get it approved, walk it around to each individual person. You know the deal, right? So get it approved, get it signed, then copy it or dot controlled gives you a copy and you go out and execute. And today you could, with systems like paperless systems, like neat and, and other things, you can, you can do all that 
generation, review and approval, and execution all in one platform, not even print anything out. Yeah. So those are definitely some changes. Why is temperature mapping important? So temperature mapping is important because it's a, a critical aspect, crit, critical attribute to drug product, to samples, to reagents, you, to food. Um, it's critical, right? So if you don't maintain temperature at the required criteria that's specific for that individual item, product, food, samples, you, they can perish, they can degrade, they can spoil, they can become non-effective anymore, especially with the vaccines, right? So that's why it's important. And I, I post a lot about that kind of stuff, the importance, the purpose, why we do um, temperature mapping. As I guess in my head, it, it's clear to me that temperature is important as a factor. The measurement of the temperature is also important as a factor. I think what distinguishes what I was looking for is the exercise of mapping temperature and emphasizing its mapping. What makes it more important than let's say humidity? Because humidity is also measured, but I don't think it's measured in the same, to the, to the same level as temperature. Is that right? No, no, yeah, that's right. So humidity is monitored and measured in applications that require things to be humid, less humid or more humid. So like with your, st your stability chambers, right? There's a humidity aspect to those and that needs to be monitored and measured. And, and in that case it is, and, and we do, um, however, we, it, we won't put this, for example, um, a stability chamber with thermocouples and humidity sensors. We, we measure the, the humidity and the chambers, but not as many sensors because humidity will cover a larger amount of space. And it doesn't change as drastically as temperature, as, as the temperature requirements. So we don't need to utilize as many humidity sensors. And it's not, it's not required, but many people often want to mimic the number of thermocouples or temperature sensors for humidity. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Really? And so they'll say, oh, we might as well just do one-to-one. -one. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, but it's but, not, but it's not either. From your perspective, it's not really based in a need. Going to requirements, are, are there regulatory requirements around the expectations for, for sure you have to have some kind of temperature monitoring and control, but are there expectations outlined in any regulation yeah. standard? So there is. There's right. There's guidance out there. There's regulations out there that speak about temperature control and storage areas for drug products, humidity controls for the products, but also for creature comfort and human. You mean oh, human creature comfort in your house? You set your your thermostat to a certain temperature, and it's just it's creature comfort. That's what I meant. Right. So there are guidelines. There are acceptance criteria that are specified. But it's pretty, pretty wide range. Yeah. So like, for instance, for, for gowning in ISO 8s or ISO um, type class environments, there's requirements for this humidity RH in, in those environments. So you would have to meet those. You would have to test those, if, especially if you're claiming or 
saying that your clean room is a certain classification, uh, you, that would need to be tested and need to be verified. Obviously, if you're, if you have certain criteria around microbial growth, obviously humidity needs to be controlled, but the guidelines, they have such a wide range of acceptability of 20% to 70 RH. So it really depends on your, uh, your activity, uh, your, pr your product and, and your design. Is temperature mapping run just like any normal validation? Yeah, I'd say when you say any normal validation, it's planning, it's the preparing the documentation, it's do you have specifications, requirements, execute that protocol, perform the testing, analyze your data, run the report, and approve it. Well, I'm just trying to understand it from a, let's say, IQ point of view. Are there utilities? that go into, there's air probably. So temperature mapping uh, protocol in regards to utilities, typically say for refrigerator freezers, you're just going to be dealing with your electricity, verifying your voltage, oh. right? Your amp, so, things like that. The, is temperature mapping equal to, sorry if this is a really dumb way to ask this question, but does temperature mapping equal monitoring cold? Are there any applications where it's used for warm and is there, is monitoring the temperature for an autoclave considered temperature mapping, or is that considered part of sterilization validation? Cause it's a process parameter. Well, yeah, it, it, the answer to your question is yes. Um, it is considered temperature mapping from the standpoint that it's a, an actionable test that's being done for that autoclave for an SIP study, for a, an oven, right? An incubator is warm. So you're going to perform the temperature mapping, if you will, as a test within that qualification of that equipment. And so the idea is the same. You're, you're going to provide the sensors. You're going to have it in a specified location within the chamber, whether it's an autoclave oven, refrigerator, freezer, incubator cold room, warehouse, you're going to have specified locations for these sensors. You're going to run your study for a certain period of time. Obviously with autoclave, it's going to be a little different. You're not running for 24 hours. You, you have a cycle that you're running it for, right? And you're looking for other things other than just temperature when it comes to an autoclave or something like that with pressure and things like that. But yeah, so in essence, it's, it does work with cold and warm products or equipment or requirements. You said you're not running it for 24 hours. Where are you at the 24 hours would be more on the cold side, or is it also for you do depyrogenation ovens as well? When you say ovens? Yes, but those certain equipment that are the operation involves cycles or set parameters or things like that. You're going to test, you're going to test that equipment and run that cycle. So mm -hmm. depies. You're going to look at the autoclaves. You're going to look at even cryo, cryo freezers that have, that have cycles of they're warming in a, a sample and then cooling it and then freezing it and then warming it and then freezing it. So you're going to run the cycle and verify the, the mapping temperatures through, through that, um, through that test. But as far as 24 hour goes, refrigerators, freezers, anywhere where there's long-term storage you're going to run at longer periods of a study duration, refrigerators, freezers, incubators, even 
because you're storing media in incubators, you're going to run at 24 hours. That's the typical duration for those type of CTUs, controlled temperature units. Um, but then the larger units like cold rooms, you're going to typically we run three days. We'll have sensors in there for three days to capture the cycles, to capture airflow variations, changes in the cycle of the compressors and whatnot. And then in warehouses, it's the, the typical, the minimal amount of time is a seven day study. Aren't there data loggers that are used for continuous monitoring? I think I've seen that for warehouses. You, no, you're absolutely right. Sure. You're required to have monitoring sensors in your warehouse, for example. There's even a monitoring sensor in the fridge or a freezer or, or a cold room. Not as many as when done uh, performing the testing to, to, to look at the complete uniformity of the area of the space that's being tested. Okay. So the, is, is temperature mapping typically the end-all be-all validation or does it typically feed into another? I suppose I'm trying to understand. Let's use the example of a, a deep pyrogenation oven or a, I suppose it makes sense if it's just a, you said control temperature unit. That just means a storage area where temperature is its main parameter thing. So yeah. Okay. And so basically a refrigerator, incubator, warehouse. Well, actually warehouses are typically not controlled. Are they? They're monitor, not controlled. No, the warehouses, I mean, there are, there are warehouses well, that aren't, um, you know, be maintaining any type of temperature, they're ambient or if you will, or something like that. But there are warehouses that are controlled, HVAC is controlled, you know, the temperature. Um, absolutely. So what, so what, going back, what was the question that you had? Um, I'll ask it in a second, but, um, ambient temperature, mm -hmm. is that a formal definition? The, yeah, USP says that is 15 to 30 degrees is the acceptable range, like you had mentioned, but is there, in my experience, is there something tighter? That is completely up to you and your equipment and your product storage. Um, the other thing that they say is to, to make sure that your acceptable range, your acceptance criteria is based on your products, what's labeled on your products. And what's the temperature range there to be stored at? Let's say you, you want to store something at, at 25 degrees C, your range, you put 25 plus or minus five degrees C would be your range. And you go from 20 to 30. But if you have something that you're wanting to store at 22.5 degrees, so it would be based upon your need and your products requirements. Sure. So going back to the last question. Is temperature mapping typically a subset of an overall validation or is it the kind of, is it on its own? The reason that I ask this question is in, in my experience, there's a few different validation buckets. So in my experience, let's say if you're working on a large program, there'll be the process validation bucket for the product and there'll be the sterilization validation for the cycle. Mm -hmm. There'll be the environmental setting up the clean room as a validation. Those would be like very big buckets that would be months of work to, to 
and generate all the protocols, gather all of the data review. In many cases, you may have a bunch of different teams working on those things. I haven't seen temperature mapping looked at in that big bucket, or is it typically just a subset of one thing? So I think it's both. So obviously you and I, we come from different sectors of the industry, maybe where a lot of the stuff we do does intertwine at times. But in my experience, temperature mapping has been its own thing, its own standalone item. So there's temperature mapping where a team can just come in to a lab and verify temperature for their fridges and freezers or their storage area. And they're just, they set up the sensors, they run the study, they print the report and hand it to you. And that's all that you're given is a report of the data, right? But so that's temperature mapping. But then the equipment qualification of that freezer or fridge is going to go more in more depth on the install, the control parameters, the screens, does the button work? How is, where is it plugged in at? How many shelves does it have? And then run the temperature mapping studies, right? So whether it's an empty chamber, a loaded chamber, they have other tests about uh, open that door for a certain period of time, allow the temperature to collect. You'll see the temperatures rise, shut that door. You'll see the temperatures come back into spec. How long does that take? All that kind of stuff. Shut the doors, allow the, the temperatures to um, equilibrate while you're recording. Pull the plug, turn the power off, simulate a power failure. How long do, you, do the temperatures maintain the acceptance criteria until they drop out? What is that information? So during the equipment qualification, we're doing way more than just the temperature mapping. That's, that's an aspect of the qualification, which is the same for the autoclave that you're talking about or a deep buy or a bioreactor. We're going to run temperature studies and, and the bioreactor and the tanks, he runs and all that kind of stuff. So it's, an, it's definitely an aspect of the qualification or validation, but, but it, it can also stand as its own as well. Walk me through commissioning, qualification, validation. Okay. Uh, CQV commissioning is going to be running the, so first of all, that's something that has changed from when I had started uh, in the industry, commissioning, qualification, validation, and then today's standard of CQV that has changed. The guidelines have changed. Whereas in the old days, commissioning was a process that you ran all the um, you, you tested the equipment, run, run it through all its paces, its verifications, its checks, its, you know, loop checks, it's, you know, testing the operation of the unit, making sure that it works and it is installed. And then it was always done as an engineering function outside of QA per se approval. And then when you took that and everything passed, you went to that next phase of qualification where, okay, now that's a. Go ahead. Sorry to jump in, um, but before we move into qualification on commissioning, it is, is commissioning the same thing for, let's say a refrigerator or something like that, where it's FAT, SAT, or is it something else? So for a refrigerator or a freezer or things like that, there is typically not, we don't, you don't have the commissioning phase. You don't have that step, but for an autoclave or something larger like that, you would have that step because I guess because the autoclave is more of a designed element, designed item. There's features, there's programs, there's, you've built it, 
per se. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a, a minus 80 freezer. You can look through, you can flip through the, the manual and pick which one you want and then have it delivered, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no necessarily, there's no FAT um, tests going on for something like that. Okay. Then on to qualification. Right. So qualification is going to be a step where, okay, now you're getting QA to review and approve your documentation, your, your testing. So there, it's more of a qualified or it's a, a quality involvement. And, and remember, this is stuff that um, this was in, in the beginning in the past with commissioning qualification validation. And qualification, you would repeat a lot of the same testing that was done previously on the engineering version of commissioning. So it was a, a repeat of functions, repeat, repeat of tests, re-verification, the P&ID and all sorts of stuff. And then after the qualification, the IQ, OQ, PQ is done, then you would move on to the validation, the process validation side of things, right? Which that can, it can go on for a long period of time, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, but today's standard of CQV is they've combined the, the commissioning and the qualification aspect of things together to alleviate all that redundant testing, right? And quality is a player from the beginning, not, not separated. The C and Q is handled nowadays. Uh, if, if you probably looked around at a lot of different companies, C and Q is, is, is handled within the engineering departments, um, the facilities teams, like they're responsible for the C and Q. Whereas the quality or the, the validation departments with, within a site handle the, valid, the V, the validation side of things. So in, in your experience, validation feeds in through the quality org? Uh, yes. And interesting. I think that's maybe something that's a little bit different between med tech and biotech. My experience in med tech is even though validation is approved and overseen by quality in a way that's quite heavy, the actions taken are have typically been in operations, but when I moved into pharma, I started seeing a lot more validation departments as part of quality. quality right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about the different temperature ranges and the challenges associated. So you mentioned a, a minus 80 for ultra cold drugs. The typical ranges are like minus 20 to minus 80, I believe, two to eight, and then ambient. There's no warm drugs, are there? No, yeah, you have your, your two to eight chambers, your refrigerators, your, your deli boxes, if you will, two to eights, which is a five degree set point or something like that. And then you have your, your minus twenties, your minus eighties, like you said, you have your cryo storage, which is, it can be a, a tank that has LN2 supplied to the tank to, to maintain that, that cryo storage. Lots of times that mean LN2, uh, liquid nitrogen, LN2, sorry. And so the LN2 can either be surface level in the tank at the bottom. And what happens is you can store your samples inside of this vessel and they're not submerged in LN2, but they are kept in the vapor phase of LN2. So your, your temperatures are minus 140, minus 130. Is it all the same or are there unique challenges that come with as you get colder or as you get warmer? 
So definitely it's not all the same. Uh, there are unique challenges to, to the different temperatures, things that you need to be careful of. Obviously with cold or hot, you need to protect, be safe, right? Protection, especially with Ellen um, or steam. The use of your equipment doesn't react the same with the cold, super cold or hot. So you can't just, I can't be temperature mapping a LN2 unit, pull my probes and then go do a incubator. You know what I mean? You need to be cognizant of the, the temperatures that you're utilizing your equipment in and what they can actually be used for. Cause not all equipment can be used for these extreme temperatures versus the mid range uh, temperatures that we just mentioned. What about shipping ranges? I, I know that in for, for temp controlled drugs, data loggers are uh, included in, in the shipping uh, containers, whether it's on, on a controlled truck or right. in the boxes, I think I've seen before. Mm -hmm. But can you talk about that? So data loggers that are put um, into shipping containers or, or shipping um, cartons, uh, shipping packages. So there's shipping validation that, that exists. And that's to, to verify the, the criteria for your product that your shipping is, is maintained and, and doesn't degrade over time. And the shipping studies that are used, they have data loggers that are transmitting the data or recording the data that when you, when the package re is received at its location, you can download that data and verify your, you've been within spec during your run. And then there's those real-time monitors that are providing that feedback to, to a cloud server so that you can monitor that study during the actual shipment. They are, temperature ranges can vary from like a two to eight, it can could be a minus 20, it could be a minus 80 requirement to, to maintain that shipment. They'll pack that thing in dry ice, they'll pack the box up with ice packs. And, and so that's the whole purpose of shipping validation is to verify, make sure that what you, how you're packaging your products or your equipment can actually maintain that temperature requirement. Are the data loggers the same? Are the data loggers the same? Like for the ones that are included as part of, let's say commercial distribution, are they disposable or are they expected to be sent back? So it, it really depends. So the answer is yes, but to, to all that, that it really depends on what you purchase, right? You can purchase a single use sensor that really? the, the only function it is to, you purchase it, it's calibrated, it's set up for your study. It's set up with alarms, high and lows, so that it can create that feedback for you. And you hit start and you ship. And then when it's done, it's, it's it. So that's a lower price type of a sensor. And, and I guess it, it boils down to pricing, right? And how many sh shipments are you going to be using? There's multiple use sensors where you can use them multiple times throughout the life of the sensor. And then there's the, the sensors that are, they don't have a, a life cycle, if you, like a, a life expectancy, if you will, as long as you're maintaining calibration yearly and you're keeping the equipment up in good standards with maintenance and whatnot. But yeah, absolutely. You, there's different sensors, but are, can they be used in a refrigerator or a warehouse or a shipping container? I can use the same, I can use the same data loggers for those items. The accuracy and things like that is, 
is what matters for us when we use these data loggers. So Nate, where can people find you? People can find me online, LinkedIn. I at Nathan Roman on LinkedIn. I post in, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, 7.30 every morning. Maybe you didn't actually say that. We've talked before, <laughs> sir. Um, but yes, people can find me um, online, LinkedIn. Um, I'm posting at 7.30. It's an automatic posting. So I'm not necessarily typing it out every morning, but, but I'm there looking to see if I need to um, provide any comments, feedback, uh, engagement to folks. But people can definitely find me there. You can find me at ISPE events. You can find me at our typical industry networking events. Yep. Fine, Nathan. Thank you for coming on. This was fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Let's, let's talk again soon. Yep.